Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M. And this week, we're going to sit down with Dr. David Clark. Dr. Clark is a board-certified gastroenterologist and internal medicine physician who has spent the majority of his career now looking at diseases from the perspective of what else could be causing them. He has a clinic where he is specifically looking for diseases that have been tested and studied from the gastrointestinal perspective and not found to have an etiologic cause from a pathological or biomarker perspective. And then goes on to find over time that these patients have mental health stressors or psychological stressors that have been hidden for a long time, leading to the pain cycle that the patient is going through that shows up as either gastrointestinal. Now he looks at patients who could have back pain, headaches, all the above, but the underlying etiology is not actually something that is diagnosable from a biomarker test or a specific, uh, let's say, a colonoscopy looking for inflammatory bowel disease. It is very much scientifically real, but it is coming from a psychological origin in the brain. He has a background of education for the UCLA Medical Center, where he does internal medicine um, work and had his gastroenterologic uh, fellowship completed. He went to medical school at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine, as well as undergoing undergraduate education at Williams College. He is the current president of the Pathophysiologic Disorders Association. He is a assistant director of the Center for Ethics at the Oregon Health and Science University, as well as a faculty associate at the Cummings Graduate Institute for Behavioral Health Sciences. He is a clinical advisor for Stress Illness Recovery Practitioners Association, as well as being the CEO of StressIllness.com. This conversation meanders around the world of psychology and somatic pain. We look at his work specifically as it's called the Psychophysiologic Disorders, or PPD, and the therapy that he learned from a physician named Dr. Harriet Kaplan. He has now taken his work and seen over 7,000 patients and counting to help them heal themselves from the psychological breakpoints of physiology that then lead to the symptoms of pain that they have. He is the author of the book, They Can't Find Anything Wrong. He's also the author of textbooks, Psychological Disorders, Trauma-Informed, Interprofessional Diagnosis and Treatment, as well as a Diagnostic Guide for Psychophysiologic Disorders. Dr. Clark comes on the show today to help us understand what it is like to see a patient in front of him in his gastroenterology clinic and not really have an understanding of why the biomarkers aren't correct. In the past, that would have been something that we would have said, oh, well, there's just something in this patient's head. And he clearly now knows and has shared with us in this hour-long conversation that there is more to this story. And that we shouldn't look at these patients and say, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. All of my tests are normal. Have a nice day. And that we really should go deeper into finding out what went wrong. Why are the balance points of physiology upset? And why is the patient experiencing psychosomatic symptoms that are legitimate and real? So I hope you enjoy this conversation with the very entertaining storyteller, Dr. David Clark. Well, good morning, Dr. David Clark. I know you're out there in lovely Colorado. Having just been there, I know how beautiful that state is. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, I normally live in Portland, but I'm visiting family in Denver for the holidays. That's a good enough reason to be there. So I love it. Well, let's get started. So we're going to talk a bit about psychological pain and diseases related to mental health, right? And so whether we call them disease or not, we can have that conversation too. But I think we're going to go deep into your work because you've done a lot of work in this space. Evidence from longitudinal studies indicates that major depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, mostly follow adverse life events, which is to say that they are anthropologically centered responses to defend against stress of the event that occurred. If the reaction is severe enough, it may begin a neurologically based change in the nervous system or get baked in to the brain 
the vagus nerve, the enteric complex, or whatever we think is going on now, as we're understanding the science and even more quantum mechanics coming into this space, this is supposed to help us survive and procreate over history. However, modern societies are stressful. The frequency of stressors seems to be getting higher and more consistent, and human health challenges are altering the physiology of the brain and the body, which is also a problem. Pain used to teach us to avoid danger. The pain could be a physical injury like stubbing a toe that said, hey, let's not do this again. Or it could be psychological in origin manifesting as a somatic complaint and symptom. Your work happens to be centered on the second part of this, mostly around the psychological induction of pain and that side of the ledger. Let's look at that and let's get granular with how you see the world right now as it is, as it relates to psychological pain, injury, disease, and actually the state of the world as we know it. And let's get into your specific work about how do we unravel all of this stuff? Yeah, I sure wish somebody had said to me what you just said uh, when I was back in medical school, because uh, that would have made a, a huge difference. Uh, it's It still shocks me that I went through the first seven years of my formal training, I mean, four years of medical school, three years of internal medicine residency, and still had no clue about anything that you just said. And I was, you know, not prepared uh, to encounter a patient uh, as a first year GI fellow that I didn't know the first thing about diagnosing or treating. And that's, that's really what it comes down to is, you know, you're in a, an exam room, you're encountering a patient, and you should be able to diagnose and treat pretty much anything that comes through the door. Um, and here was this patient who was averaging one bowel movement per month, uh, had been referred by another university. I was at UCLA in my fellowship. And the other university couldn't figure out what was wrong. They sent her to us because we did this very specialized testing of the neuromuscular uh, features of the large intestine. We actually put electrodes uh, in the sigmoid colon and measured what was going on. And that was normal too. My department chair and I were like, this test has to be abnormal. There's no other explanation is possible. Um, but you know, to our dismay, that test was normal too. So I'm doing her exit interview. I'm telling her that, you know, you're going to have to live with this. Uh, I ask her about stress one more time, but everybody else has asked her about stress and she doesn't have any issues there. She's happily married. She's got some kids. She's working part-time, which she likes. Uh, so I, at the very end, I asked her about stress, you know, earlier, thinking, you know, maybe she went through a trauma two years before when her illness began. And she interprets the question to mean the remote past and tells me that her father molested her. And this turned out to be hugely important in, in my practice to find out about adverse childhood experiences. But at the time, no training no background, no idea if this was important, no idea how to follow up a statement like that. But it turned out that she'd been molested hundreds of times by her father. And, you know, this hugely uh, striking piece of history, um, I had no idea whether it was connected to her illness or not. But I had heard vaguely about a psychiatrist named Harriet Kaplan, who was uh, board certified in medicine as well and had an interest in these mind to body connections. So I said, great, I've got a place to pass the buck here. I can, I, you know, never thought for a minute that Dr. Kaplan would be able to help a patient like this with serious physical symptom. Um, but I thought, you know, maybe the patient will be able to live with this a little better. So I uh, made the appointment with Dr. Kaplan, forgot all about her, went on with my fellowship, Several months later, run into Harriet in an elevator and just to make conversation, whatever happened uh, with that patient that I referred to you. And uh, Harriet said, I haven't seen her in a few weeks now, Dave. She's cured. Uh, this patient was taking four different laxatives at double the usual doses. And I'm going, you can't cure a serious physical symptom like that just by talking to somebody, can you? Um, and so later I, I caught up with Dr. Kaplan and and started talking to her about how she did this. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to be a complete GI doctor, I should I should learn a little bit about how to do this because I might I might see another patient like this someday. Uh, well, when I got into private practice uh, in Portland, Oregon, um, I was seeing five or six patients like this a week. Anytime my my you know, endoscopies or ultrasounds or CAT scans were not showing the cause of a patient's symptoms. 
um, I would ask the questions and use the framework that Dr. Kaplan had taught me. And I was finding these uh, past and present stresses in people's lives in 35% of my patients. Um, and there's a review article from uh, about uh, five or 10 years ago that says that in primary care, it's 40% of people that are coming through. And almost none of us gets trained uh, in how to diagnose or treat this. Mostly we're taught, oh, that's in their heads. It's, you know, these people are neurotic. The symptoms aren't real. You can't diagnose it. The patients can't, you know, get better. They're going to just have to live with this. Um, it's not really uh, up to us as uh, medical clinicians to deal with this. Uh, it turns out that none of those assumptions is true. And that if you know what to look for, um, you can diagnose and treat these patients successfully, and you don't have to be a psychiatrist to do it. I can't tell you how many levers you're pulling on right there for me. <laughs> uh, you know, UCLA undergrad, med school, you know, uh, I mean, sorry, uh, Williams undergrad, then you go to UCLA med school, medical school, you get this great training in GI fellowship. You're supposed to be at the top of your game. Yes. And you, and you walk in there and you're like, wait, every test is normal. And I'm sitting there in the same position going through all these schools, end up in private practice, and you see these cases and you're like, what is missing here? And then, of course, the default pathway is always this idiopathic, somatoform. You know, we give it all these names because cryptogenic. Yeah, we give it all these names because we're too stupid to understand what's really happening until somebody brilliant like uh, Dr. Harriet uh, Kaplan comes along and you are doing this work. And I look at this in the world of like biomarkers. Like we have all these diseases and until there's a biomarker, it doesn't exist. Celiac disease, the poster child, right? So all these people are complaining about GI distress when they eat food and gluten turns out to be the major player. But until then, all their quacks, they're nuts, you know, paper after paper. They're, and then all of a sudden we have a biomarker. This is a real disease now. Let's go after this. So yeah, you're pulling on a ton of levers here. Let's dial down a little granular now. So we have a case, which you just described, which is one of many, many, many cases that are, that are in our world now that we all know of because of adverse childhood events, major life stressors that now send the system into a dysfunctional, for the right word, is probably neuroplastic event that changes the plasticity in the wrong direction, not the right, right. direction. What actually is going on in the pathways of the of the brain, the the vagus nerve, the enteric nervous plexus? I mean, any part of that you want to talk about, like what's really getting baked in to the person? Yeah, it's um, there are a number of studies now that show that the circuits uh, in the brain that they use uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging and they look at uh, groups of these patients. Uh, they've done it for somatization disorders, irritable bowel, fibromyalgia. Um, they've looked at it in people who've had ACEs in the past, and the circuits are different than they are in healthy people, in, in people who don't have these uh, conditions. And um, what is likely going on is that the uh, interoceptive signals, the signals that are coming from inside the body, you know, our sensory nerve systems uh, obviously take in information from the external world, but they're also taking in information from uh, internally. And it's just the way they're processing those signals uh, into a uh, a pain signal, or uh, they're sending, um, you know, motor nerve uh, signals to the uh, viscera, or sometimes to the blood vessels, uh, causing the, you know, abnormal contractions. You know, that patient with the severe constipation, her large intestine was obviously uh, shut down by this. Uh, that was coming from the brain, which was in turn coming from stress. Uh, so the the good news is that we are beginning to get uh, information that uh, with what I call pain relief psychotherapy, which is a, a new thing, has been developed in, in recent years, um, you can actually change these circuits back. Uh, the Boulder back pain study, for example, they had patients with an average of 10 years of chronic back pain. They took 150 of them, divided them into uh, three groups, two control groups, and a, a group that got pain relief psychotherapy. Uh, the pain scores averaged about four out of 10 uh, for these groups. But with the group that got the uh, the psychotherapy, within a month, the pain scores dropped to an average of one, uh, two thirds of them down to zero. And this is after 10 years uh, of uh, having uh, this chronic back pain. And they did fMRIs before and after treatment and the uh, psychotherapy actually physically changed the neuroanatomy in these patients. So uh, there is a physiologic basis for this. These patients are not 
Uh, it's not all in their heads. They're not imagining it. Uh, there are truly uh, that physiologic change. That's why my colleagues and I call this a psychophysiologic disorder because you've got both elements going on. Yeah, and and to your point, sort of like the genetic code of understanding, we have 19,000 genes as humans. We thought we'd be this incredibly complex creature with millions of genes. And it's the epigenome that actually makes us so complex with 19,000 genes where a wheat stalk has 150,000 genes doesn't make any sense. And a lot of stuff that happens in our physiology until we really understand it, we, we're sort of puzzled. And the one thing that I thought was an aha moment when it comes to psychology and psychiatry is that in the brain, you know, here we use drugs like SSRIs and different things. You think most of serotonin is actually in the brain where 80% is actually in the gut. And you hit on a really important topic that I want to touch a little deeper on, and that's enteroception. If the bi-directional flow of information from the brain to the gut via the vagus nerve should be top down, so we think, but actually it's the opposite. The data is now pretty clear that 80% of the impulses actually come from the gut and go back to the brain, speaking 100% to what you're saying, that it's the actual exposures that we have and how our body perceives it, sort of like Basil van der Kolk's work, body keeps the score. That's actually teaching the brain, not the brain down. And so your work is super fascinating because if you're now going in through talk therapy and a relationship therapy and, and emotional therapy, unwinding this, that's actually, I would think, perceptively, mostly coming through the brain cognitively. Am I right or wrong in that? And then unwind what you think most of the interoception piece is or, or go a little deeper there. Because I think the, the audience doesn't hear the word interoception very often, actually probably never. That's not a commonly used phrase and it needs to be a, a, a word that everybody understands. Yeah, and it just means that there are signals coming from inside our bodies that our brain is monitoring. And if those signals are being interpreted um, as painful, um, you know, that's um, a distortion. That's um, a result of these uh, changes in nerve circuits that have come about as a result of stress. Um, but And it can be stress from childhood. I mean, the majority of my patients, um, they went through ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, often uh, more than one. Um, and the common denominator there is stress that uh, has an impact on your self-esteem is probably the most uh, single most common uh, uh, long-term outcome, but there are others. Um, we can't go back and change somebody's ACEs, but we can intervene uh, in a successful way with the long-term impact. Uh, people can have uh, personality traits that are stressful that have come out as a direct result of their childhood experience. They can be uh, low self-esteem, perfectionist, trying to be good all the time, poor assertiveness, poor self-care skills, all of those things uh, can be addressed uh, psychologically and with a result that there's a reduction in stress. Um, triggers is another one um, that can lead to these uh, signals from your inside your body being distorted into pain or other problems. Uh, triggers being people, events, or situations in the present day that are linked to uh, the past. Uh, the most common being uh, that someone who mistreated you as a kid is still in your life today. Um, one of my patients was hospitalized at Stanford University 60 times in 15 years for attacks of nausea, vomiting, and extreme dizziness. And she saw a dozen specialists there. She saw a psychiatrist there. Uh, and none of them knew what to look for. You know, look for adversity in childhood, which she definitely had, look for triggers in the present day, which she also definitely had. And once we made that connection for her, and we can get into that story more if you want, but once that connection was made for her, she was pretty much cured on the spot. Um, just bringing that into conscious awareness so that she could she could think about it, because so much of this happens uh, beneath conscious awareness. Uh, when she was telling me about um, one of the big triggers of her uh, symptoms, uh, she had no idea it was linked uh, to the fact that her mother had been abusive towards her um, as a girl. Um, but it, once you heard the full story, uh, it was clear that uh, that was what was going on. And in her case, you know, I wish I could cure everybody, uh, you know, with a one hour conversation. I definitely can't. But um, in her case, 
once she saw that, she had this light bulb moment. I can still remember her looking up at the ceiling and saying, oh, my God, I can't believe this. Um, and she never had another episode. And she'd been having between six and 10 of these attacks a year. So, you know, it's not difficult to learn how to do this. Uh, we've, you know, on, on our website, endchronicpain.org, we've got uh, training courses. We've got a new uh, advanced training course coming in January. We've got uh, recorded conferences with uh, you know, a total of 24 hours of material from international experts. And any clinician can learn how to ask these questions, learn the same framework that Dr. Kaplan taught me. Uh, and you can get you know, vastly better uh, outcomes uh, with patients. Even as a bumbling beginner, I was getting decent outcomes because these ideas are so, uh, so powerful. Yeah, I, I think it's actually brilliant. Uh, years and years and years of folks being told it's in their head, now finally getting to the point of giving them the freedom to walk away from a, a traumatic event that was not of their making. And so let's touch on that a little bit, because I think anthropologically, this is super important. These genetic and neurological reactions to an event are not mistakes. And again, I'm a big fan of the statement that there's nothing in the body that's there by mistake. And most reactions are baked into our genes as protective mechanisms for survival or procreation. So the anthropologic reason why somebody would block out or consciously not have a memory or not be able to associate a memory to an adverse childhood event is what? You know, I think it's uh, it's definitely protective. You know, these are painful things to think about um, when you are a child in an abusive environment. And it doesn't have to be physically or sexually abusive. I mean, uh, words and emotions can be just as harmful in the long term. And if you have a, you know, a normal human emotional reaction to this, anger, fear, shame, grief, guilt, any of those things, uh, you know, they're not going to help you as a kid to survive that environment. And so those emotions get repressed. Um, they get buried somewhere. That My patient who was molested by her father, I mean, he had full-on sexual intercourse with her an average of once a week for eight years uh, up until she was 12. I mean, just to this day, one of the most horrifying stories of sexual abuse uh, that I've heard out of my 7,000 plus patients with this condition. But, you know, she was telling me about this in the same tone of voice you'd use to read a grocery list. I mean, there was no emotion there. She wasn't throwing things at the wall or, you know, bashing her head or uh, jumping up and down and screaming. She just calmly telling me about this. The emotions were there, uh, no doubt, uh, but they were all being expressed somatically instead of verbally. Uh, and that's one of the key forms of, of the treatment is to help people first recognize that they have these emotions and then put them into words. And the more you can put them into words, the less they need to express themselves via your body. Right. Right. I think of that a lot in the terms of like the dorsal vagal response, which is almost like you're dissociated. You are present moment for whatever's happening in your life as a body, but your mind is gone. So like in the, the this, this story that's so horrific that you're speaking to, the odds are this young woman, when she was six, seven, eight, nine years old, left her body there, but her mind would take a vacation during these experiences. And so she sort of lived her way, her life that way. And so anytime she got near an event that made her feel that way again, that would trigger probably all of these repressive feelings. And then my guess is again, over the years that neurologically baked into her psyche, this problem that somewhere along the way, the chronicity of her stress turned into a somatic complaint. And then you run into her when she's had repeated issues. And I think this is the big crux of this because people don't choose these behaviors. No. These, are, these are adaptive behaviors for survival. And I think you make that very clear. I think that's super important for people to hear that when we see children and adults who are acting in a very, makes no sense that somebody's talking in a monotone voice about something as horrific as that, that's actually protective to your point. And I think it's super incredibly dysfunctional for folks to look at these patients and say they're crazy, they're this or that, none of the above. This is a beautiful way of seeing trauma. And I, and I applaud you for your work to start to look at this very differently. And again, I, I 
want to pull on this lever again, that all these years of medical training are supposed to give us the tools to be the best versions of ourselves to care for our patients. And nowhere in medical training did we ever have the opportunity to see people as psychological humans. Instead, we tended to be trained to look at them as diseases that needed to be fixed with a pharmacologic agent, which really is not the best way to practice medicine. And you emblematically have proven that. And so let's now shift gears a little bit and let's dial into like, take a patient, pick any patient you want, obviously de-identified, and let's go through beginning to end. They walk in your office, you see them. What is the entire process beginning for to end for Dr. David Clark to get a patient from point A to as close as you can to point Z healed of their own and your collaborative communication making? Well, you know, obviously starts with uh, doing the diagnostic evaluation to make sure there's not uh, a disease or an injury that's responsible for their symptoms. But one of the key points for uh, the clinicians in your audience is to mention the possibility that stress could be causing the symptoms right at the beginning. So let's say I've got a patient with upper abdominal pain, and I'm going to be telling them, okay, you could have a gallstone, you could have an inflamed pancreas, you could have an ulcer, or it could be stress. So I want to mention all of those as part of the, the differential diagnosis. And patients accept that a lot better, that you're trying to be holistic, you're trying to be complete, not leaving anything uh, unchecked. Uh, if you wait until you've done a mega workup on the patient and not found anything, and then you say, oh, I wonder if it could be stress, you know, your credibility is shot at that point. I mean, the patient is going to think you're out of ideas. They're going to start thinking maybe they should go see another doctor. So at least, you know, mention it uh, right at the, right off the top. And so that when they come back for their follow-up visit and their diagnostic tests are um, not revealing anything, uh, they're going to be much better prepared to get into a discussion about stress. And I emphasize that the symptoms are just as real uh, as those caused by any other form of illness. Okay, then I go through what I call a stress evaluation, which is less stigmatizing than calling it a psychological assessment. And the stress evaluation is, you know, first, you know, find out what the chronology of the illness was, if you haven't already, because you want to know if there's a link between what's happening in their body and what's happening stress-wise. Um, second is to find out if there's any stresses in their life at the moment. And sometimes that's, you know, leads very straightforwardly to a diagnosis one of my patients, uh, nobody else had figured this out, but he only got his symptoms when he was driving to work. Um, and work was very stressful. You know, when he was driving home from work, he was fine. Uh, and on the weekends, he was fine. Um, it was only driving to work, which was a very stressful environment. So that pretty much clinched the diagnosis. Um, the next step is to ask about, you know, were you under stress as a kid? Uh, if you were, you know, what kind of things went on? You know, how difficult was it for you? Uh, and many patients will, you know, on the one hand, tell me about stressful experiences they had as children. But on the other hand, they'll say, oh, it wasn't that bad. Or other people have been through worse than I have, and they seem to be okay. Or I think I'm over it now. So when I hear that coming back to me from a patient, I'll say, well, what would it be like to watch your own kid growing up exactly the same way? And that gives people a much different perspective on the severity of their childhood experience and helps them connect better with the reality of what was going on and leads to, you know, productive additional discussion. And then the last piece uh, is, you know, pretty straightforward. I want to make sure I'm not missing a, a hidden case of depression, anxiety, or PTSD. Um, the uh, uh, depression in particular is usually missed in primary care because people stop after they say, do you feel depressed? Patient says no, and then we move on. Uh, we should not move on. We should ask about, you know, how's your sleeping? How's your energy level? Have you lost interest in things you used to love to do? Um, are you crying for no obvious reason? Does your life seem to have lost uh, purpose or, or meaning? Uh, and when we, we, we run through that litany of questions, we'll get a much more accurate sense of whether the patient is depressed or not. Same thing with trauma. Have you been through a, a horrifying, terrifying experience? Uh, and many times, the patient, nobody has asked about this. The patient has been through a trauma, and they just haven't thought to bring it up because they didn't think it was relevant. Uh, there's a colleague of mine who told me a story about a patient who was mystifying you know, many doctors in her community. 
And when he's seeing her, the, the husband says, you know, right before she became ill, she was a hostage in the robbery of a store. And she had a gun pointed at her head for about half an hour. Do you think that could be connected to why she's ill? Uh, <clears throat> fortunately, my colleague was you know, well aware of these issues, and uh, that was the start of her getting better. So that's that's my process. I want to make sure that I'm uh, thorough in covering all the different possibilities. But you would be amazed. When, I was amazed when you first start doing this. People who don't look like they're carrying any stress at all, and you hear these unbelievable stories uh, that people with you no know, outward sign of uh, being stressed uh, are carrying on their shoulders. Yeah, exactly. And and probably those are like the, the when I think of the young children who have ADD, attention deficit disorder, who are not hyperactive, they're harder to spot, they're harder to see, so they tend to slip through the cracks. And so your point's very well taken. They're not the ones that are jumping around screaming and upset about the world, so they're not easy to pinpoint. But fundamentally, how often do your patients, when they come in, with the somatic complaint that's related to the psychological effect, uh, effective issue, how often do they come morbidly depressed, anxious, I would assume that's a pretty high number as well. So do you do your work and then that gets coupled into further work into the into the mood disorder or not? Yeah, it uh, you know, we definitely want to treat people for all of the different elements uh, of stresses that they're coping with, whether it's from childhood adversity or and, and the childhood adversity is treated through um, helping them express uh, repressed emotions from helping them deal with personality traits that are stressful, uh, helping them deal with any triggers by setting boundaries between themselves and those triggers. Um, but we want to, you know, we treat everything. If they've got PTSD, we want to treat that. If they've got an anxiety disorder, um, we want to treat that. I mean, the anxiety disorder, the tip off there is that the symptoms tend to be um, less frequent or less severe when they're in what they consider a safe environment. Um, one of my patients was having attacks of abdominal pain and diarrhea two or three times a week that would come on out of the blue very quickly. Um, but she didn't have any of those when she was at home. It only happened away from home. So obviously your large intestine doesn't know if you're at home or somewhere else, only your brain knows that. And that was, you know, clearly a, an anxiety disorder that was was going on. So yeah, there's there's definitely overlap. Some of my patients, it's they only have an anxiety disorder. Um, I took care of a 16-year-old girl with severe diarrhea to the point of putting herself on a water-only diet on her bad days. Uh, she took uh, a dozen Imodium tablets by one o'clock in the afternoon on those days and was still having diarrhea. Um, but uh, this points to the importance of getting the exact chronology. It turned out that her bad days were only on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, and nobody else had gotten this history. They all just assumed that she was having this diarrhea all the time. But she was asymptomatic on weekends. She was eating a regular diet. There is no way that that's from your colon. Something is going on on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Well, it was her, uh, she played varsity soccer. And that's when they played their games against other high schools. And she was very anxious about how she was going to do. So, uh, you know, I treated her for an anxiety disorder. I believe I gave her Paxil. Uh, in you know just modest modest dose, um, and within ten days her diarrhea had gone away. It is the only time in my career I have cured diarrhea with Paxil. Um, but in her case, it was not only was it uh, effective as a treatment, but it was also diagnostic because uh, obviously Paxil is not going to do a darn thing for any other cause of diarrhea. Right, right. I have a case that I remember very clearly long before I understand understood what you were doing um, in, a, in a functional medicine case that I had as a young girl who was a top in her sport in the state and just had all kinds of GI concerns, did a full workup, dysbiosis, all kinds of stuff. She had some you know, biochemical uh, dysfunction in her gut. We did a Pimentol protocol, did a lot of work on diet, you know, a bunch of stuff. Everything looked great. Still was uh, without relief symptoms were still there bloating abdominal pain the whole nine yards and so to your point started doing a deeper dive into the history waited till the parents weren't there and found out that she doesn't want to play this sport hasn't wanted to play this sport for years only played it because her parents never wanted her to quit 
again, she was great at it, best in the state. And then I gave her the freedom to say, hey, it's your life. Are you done? She goes, yes. She quit, never had pain again. And so I think everything you're stating is emblematic of this reality that when, to your point, again, I think this is a really important point that you made. When we do the initial true, let's call it true medicine, scientific analysis to find out if there's something really going on, you know, is there IBD, is there gastroesophageal reflux disease with erosive esophagitis, something else going on. And we don't see that. That's the point where we have to dig deeper into what you're stating and hey, this is clearly something we need to look into. And oftentimes I find fascinating enough that it takes two or three visits for the patient to actually open up and give me the truth of an answer. One time I have a case that I remember nine months before the family finally divulged what was going on. Both the child and the parent would not tell the truth. So I think your point's very well taken that it's the persistence of our love in questioning. And I use the word love because we have to come at it from a positive attacking point right so former medicine used to be at times almost adversarial hey what's wrong with you why are you doing this why are you doing that what's going on and it can't be it has to be loving questioning what happened to you can i help you is there anything i need to know and so let's go through some of the questions that you actually specifically ask in your process and how you would ask them so people can get a flavor of of what it's like to approach a patient the way you do well, I would say probably the uh, most distinctive area is in the adverse childhood experiences. And I'll just start off with an open-ended general question. I mean, this this can be a, a challenging area for a clinician to get into with a patient, especially if they don't know them very well. But I'll just, you know, open-ended question, uh, were you under stress as a child? And people are surprisingly willing to share about this. They're actually grateful that a medical professional is willing to uh, look into this. It wasn't unusual for me to be only the first or second person that they had ever shared this information with. Um, there's even some data from uh, Vince Felitti, who was the author of the original uh, ACEs paper, that just having this conversation uh, leads to a 35% reduction in medical office visits over the following year. Um, so people are, are very willing to share, and I'll, I'll try to get details uh, from them. I'll say, you know, what what experiences did you have? How bad were they on a scale of zero to 10? Um, and then they'll give me some number. And I'm not too concerned about the number. Uh, I just will say, well, what makes you, what happened to you that makes you give it the number that you do? Um, and many of these patients will have a tendency to minimize what they went through. None of us has a, a parallel life to compare ourselves with. So when people look back at their experience, uh, they don't necessarily see it as bad uh, as an objective observer would. Um, so if if they are really minimizing it, if they are telling me on the one hand something terrible they went through, and on the other hand saying, oh, it wasn't that bad, other people have been through worse than me, I think I'm over it now, that's when I have them do a, a thought experiment that's got a lot of value to it. I'll have them imagine themselves a butterfly on the wall of their childhood home, and they're watching a child they care about, either their own or somebody else's, uh, try to cope with that environment. And what is that like for them to watch? And my favorite story around that was a, a patient who's actually a, a, an actress um, that I was you know, meeting informally, but she'd had symptoms for 20 years, you know, up to four, five, six symptoms in her body at a time. Uh, nobody, uh, you know, outside of her immediate circle of friends knew about this. Uh, and it turned out she had grown up with, uh, as an only child, with two parents who verbally and emotionally fought with each other all the time. And she was the peacemaker in the family, even as a little girl. Um, and it was, you know, obviously a very difficult situation. Finally, when she's age eight, the parents get divorced. And you would think, okay, she's finally going to get some relief from this. But no, the parents kept living in the same house. They slept in separate bedrooms, but they still lived in the same house. So from her perspective, there was no change at all. And for the next 10 years, she had to continue being the peacemaker. But she's telling me this story, again, very calm voice, you know, no evidence of any emotion around this, telling me that it really wasn't that bad, that she dealt with it okay, and it's in the past, and I'm I'm over it. Well, it turned out that she had um, a beloved niece uh, in the town where she lived. She would take the niece for the weekends. She would do all kinds of fun things with this, you know, little four, five, six-year-old girl. So I used that as my 
um, my key in the butterfly on the wall experiment and said, okay, imagine your niece, she's in that home with your parents and you're all you can do is watch, you can't intervene and you have to watch your niece try to cope with your parents. What is that gonna be like for you? And she just stared at me. I mean, she, you know, as an actress, very verbal person, you know, could carry the conversational ball forever. Uh, but when I had her think about this, she just didn't say anything for a couple of minutes, which for her was a long time. And finally, she said, at the end of that week, I would shoot myself. Hmm. Wow. And that was the first time she truly recognized just how difficult it had been. And it was a huge breakthrough for her. I would say how moving for her to release it in that moment with you that she had the that she felt okay to let that go because you put her in a third person observer role. That's fascinating. And wow. you'd never guess that that she was carrying anything like this, but it affected her personal life. I mean, many patients uh, when they grow up in an environment where they're having to devote themselves to uh, the needs of other people in that environment. Their their self care skills are not good. They they tend to have difficulty putting themselves on the list of people they take care of. Uh, their choice of relationship partners tends not to be good. They tend to choose people that uh, have issues uh, that are you know the mutuality of the relationship is completely unbalanced. Where they are they are giving a lot more than they're receiving. Uh, and she had that history as well. Her her boyfriends going back to high school were all pretty much rotten. Uh, in fact, uh, after that conversation, she dumped her boyfriend the next day uh, mm. and went without a boyfriend for well over a year, which was unusual for her, uh, and finally met uh, a guy who was able to give back as much as she was giving to him. And they've been happily married for a decade now. Mm, this is beautiful. I want you to tell some more stories, but before we go, you're a great storyteller. And I, I think the audience is going to like more of these cases and stories. But before we go down that road, how does pain relief psychology, the work you're doing, differ from cognitive behavioral therapy in particular? Night and day. Uh, you know, if if cognitive behavioral therapy worked, I would never have gotten into this. <laughs> I mean, I sent my patients off to mental health, you know, as a, you know, an early bumbling beginner back in the eighties. And, you know, a whole bunch of them came back and said, you know, I'm not any better now. What do we do? And there was nobody else in, in my community that was there. So I said, all right, I've got this framework from Dr. Kaplan. We will try some things. And it was four or five years of trial and error before I felt like uh, my learning curve had reached a decent level. Um, and, you know, not coincidentally, the, the year after that, I worked for a big HMO and I, they gave me the Doctor of the Year Award the very next year after I felt like, OK, I finally know what I'm doing. Uh, so that was an interesting uh, coincidence. Um, but uh, I'm sorry, what was your question again? No, no, I was just asking if what's the stark difference between CBT and what oh, you're doing. CBT, right. Because CB, CBT, CBT is the, you know, what people talk about all the time in yeah, the great it's therapy. It's the, the dominant form of psychotherapy in the U.S., as you know. Right. And it, it doesn't really work for this population right. because it doesn't get into the long-term impact of the ACEs. Um, so the, what pain, what's different about pain relief psychology is several things. And there, there are a couple of different subtypes of it. Uh, as there always are in, in psychotherapy, but they share, you know, a huge overlap. And that first of all, their goal is to cure the symptoms. They, they are looking to relieve the symptoms, not just help you live with them or cope with them better. We are going for complete relief of the symptoms uh, and can usually achieve that. Uh, the second thing is that they uh, concern themselves with shifting the patient's attention from their bodies, wh wherever the symptoms happen to be, uh, to the brain, letting people know that it's your brain that is creating these symptoms in your body and that we need to think about why the brain is doing this and it's doing this because there's a stress in your life, past or present or both. And we need to figure out what that stress is. Uh, and the third piece is uh, not all of the forms of pain relief psychotherapy do this, but the one that I practice does. And we're looking for the long-term impact of ACEs. We're looking for trauma. We're looking for uh, repressed emotions. And we're trying to bring those emotions into cognitive awareness uh, so that we can talk about them and write about them. And um, you know, one of the exercises I have my patients do quite commonly is to 
write an unmailed letter to their ace perpetrators uh, to put all their thoughts and feelings down because they typically have both positive and negative thoughts and feelings. Uh, the, the negative usually outweighs the positive, but um, the fact that they're mixed uh, is a barrier for people to put the negative ones out there. Uh, but once they do that, uh, you know, they get um, a tremendous benefit from that. One of my patients uh, wrote a, a letter to his father took it to his father's grave and read it to him. And it took him four or five hours to read the whole thing by his history when he came back for follow-up. And the um, by the end, he said he was shouting. Um, but he got tremendous benefit from that. His symptoms were 90% better after just that, that one cathartic exercise. Um, so, you know, these are the characteristics of the pain relief psychology. And um, the Boulder back pain study, you know, I'm here in Denver. Was, this was done just, you know, a half hour drive away. They um, they got, uh, they used this uh, and the pain scores just plummeted. You know, after 10 years of four out of 10 pain, the subjects in that group, 50 of them, dropped their pain scores to an average of one in four weeks. I mean, it's, you know, you you look at the pain research literature, you just don't see anything like that. Um, you know, if, you're, if your audience has some statistics buffs in it, uh, there's a, a statistic called the effect size. Um, and it's basically the, the impact that you're having on your subjects with your treatment compared to your um, control group. And the, uh, a normal effect size in a pain study in the past has been like uh, small to moderate, which is the number is 0.2 to 0.5. The effect size in the Boulder back pain study was one and a half. Mm. I mean, it was, you know, um, night and Huge. day different. Um, Huge. Than, uh, what's we've seen in the past. And then we and then we just take your work and now say, okay, let's just go even dispassionately to the economic effect of this. Oh my the amount of The amount of money saved by your work. It's just, it's, it's actually probably mind boggling when you consider how many, like that one patient, you said 65 visits in a bunch of years, the cost of many of those probably being emergency room visits. And then the drugs that were given for reasons that in general, you and I know very rarely ever work. I, I often see patients come back to me from different providers who don't have the time or the ability to know what you're doing to actually dive any deeper and just, Hey, here's a med. See you later. And the cost structures of that, it's just, it's, it's absolutely mind boggling how dysfunctional the system actually is when we don't know the whole person approach. And what you've done is added another layer of the whole person approach. You're taking the enteric mind connection and figured out a way to help us understand how to unwind it for those folks who've gotten stuck. And that's pretty amazing stuff. I have to say. Yeah. The, um, you know, one of my patients <clears throat> had this for 55 years Another one of my patients had it for 79 years. Um, the guy with the 55 years, uh, I saw him back in the days before the electronic medical record, and he came with volume three of his paper chart, which was three inches thick, uh, full of negative diagnostic tests and unsuccessful treatments. There, there was one paper from 2005 that estimated the cost of this condition is $250 billion. Um, the cost of chronic pain, which probably two-thirds of chronic pain is related to uh, psychophysiologic processes. Cost of chronic pain a, a decade ago was estimated at $650 billion. I mean, it's more than cancer, diabetes, and heart disease combined. Um, and, you know, we can, we can diagnose and treat this condition as successfully as uh, anything else. And I should add, it's not just GI. Um, you know, after I be be at the doctor of the year award, people started sending me their mystery cases. You know, I saw patients with, you know, migraines, uh, back pain. I had one gentleman with total body itching, um, you know, people with pelvic pain, uh, genital pain, persistent genital arousal disorder is another one that falls into this bladder spasms, yep. uh, numbness and tingling in the extremities, uh, you know, unexplained cough, you know, the, the list is virtually endless. Right, right. And, and, and there goes to the point of the, the human condition, you know, as we, as we exist in this world, it doesn't matter where the pain goes to the matters of the pain exists, which is a signal that something's 
dysfunctional. We're not in balance. So when somebody has chronic pain, doesn't matter where it is, we got to start looking for why the balance point is broken. What's the reason the body keeps sending the signal? I always tell this to folks all the time. If you kick, if you kick the wall and your toe hurts, the treatment is not Motrin. The treatment is to stop kicking the wall. <laughs> that's, that's right. All right. All right. So if we keep kicking the wall, we have a problem, Houston. And so your work is awesome. I want one more story, though. You're, you're, you're a great storyteller. So give, give me one more case um, to share with the audience that that you love and and you you have a lot of, I don't know, good, happy feelings around how it turned around. Well, you know, I should uh, mention the adolescents uh, since you, you clearly uh, see people in that age group. And they actually are the most challenging uh, single group because they are Number one, still living in the environment that is stressful for them. They haven't, you know, become adults and moved on. Um, and number two, uh, not infrequently, <clears throat> the stress that's going on is not obvious. Um, the uh, it's not like the, the there's abuse going on, for example, or that there's you know one of the parents is abusing substances or is a rageaholic. It, you know, not infrequently the the family seems like it's functioning pretty well. Like your patient who was the champion athlete, um, everybody's trying to do the right thing in that home. And I, I would see that all the time. Um, one of my patients uh, uh, would told me that, you know, she didn't think she was under any excessive stress, but when she was telling me this, there was a big tear that ran down her cheek. And uh, so I clearly needed to get some more detail. And it, it turned out the night before her symptoms began, her parents sat down with her and she had a very intense academic schedule. She was in an international baccalaureate high school program, which is very intense. She had lots of extracurricular stuff going on, but her parents sit down with her on a Sunday evening and they said, honey, uh, we don't think you're keeping up with current events uh, as well as you might. And we want you to start reading either the New York Times every day or read The Economist magazine every week. We'll, we'll give you your choice. Uh, the very next day, she starts having stomach pain. Um, and that was, you know, clearly the straw that broke this poor 16-year-old's back. It was just too much on top of everything else. And, you know, it wasn't easy to persuade the parents uh, um, that they were, you know, contributing significantly to the child's uh, issue. Uh, so I just said, you know, uh, this young woman is remarkable in all the things she's able to do, but at the same time, I rarely see a teenager under this much pressure. And I didn't say where the pressure was coming from. I just decided I was going to let them uh, figure that out. And they did. And, you know, she had had seven different appointments, either for uh, office visits or diagnostic tests in three weeks before she came to see me. And uh, once we got those ideas out there into that family, um, it stopped. Her symptoms went away. Yeah. Woo. Some amazing stuff. I tell you, if I could go back like you stating it right at the beginning, if somebody had discussed this stuff with me back in 1992, those last 25 years of medicine here at this practice and during medical school would have been much more enriching for me. I know when I first started out, I was clearly a little bit too black and white around what people suffered with what diseases and what I saw. That's and, what we're and, taught. Yeah. And now it's very nice to see the world of gray. And frankly, a great live song, The Beauty of Grey, and the beauty of the understanding of what you're stating, that there's a lot to be said here and a lot to be looked for. And in the end, what we're doing is we're healing the souls of people. Frankly, I hate using the word we're healing. They're healing their souls through uh, appropriate guidance from us. And that's, at the end of the day, what we really want to see happen in medicine and not live in a world where pharmacology is the only answer. And I I don't want to say pharmacology is not an answer. Pharmacology is very useful in cases, but Absolutely. as 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 a sum total of modern medicine, it's 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 just not right. You know, when I spent two thousand hours in pharmacology in medical school and sixteen hours on nutrition, minimal amounts on true psychotherapy and the stuff we needed, it's a bit skewed in the wrong direction. So the balance points are broken right from the get go for most providers to get the data to their people. And so I am absolutely thrilled to have talked to you today and be able to share your wisdom with the world. So this can become the new lexicon for everybody, not just providers, but parents who now know this and can go, hey, you're not giving me answers on things that are potentially related to stress, or they can look at themselves or look at their kids differently. And that brings up a book that I love. And, and I don't know if you've read it, but The Carpenter and the Gardener. Have you have you read no, that? No, I Al haven't seen that. Uh, Al Alison Gopnik, G O P N I K, uh, Stanford professor, wrote a book about 
parenting. And she, my favorite guest is anthropologic base. She's in a, uh, she's a, I guess, a psychological anthropologist. And she went back and looked at parenting through thousands and thousands of years in humans and in primates. And, and she writes this book about the patterns. And the most important thing is to have a balance point between the gardening and the carpenting. Um, of the child. So a gardener would be provide soil, nutrients, sunlight, water, and safety, and let the child grow in whichever direction they choose. The carpenter is a little bit more chiseled. We're going to make you refine. We're going to help you go in this direction, that direction. And I think in modern society, we're that too much. We're too much carpenters. We're trying to get our kids into the best schools. You got to be in this dance of routine. You got to be doing this sport. You got to be studying all the time. And the pressure on all these kids to get the best SATs, the best ACT, it's too high. And so we have to fall back into more towards what you're stating is this, I think you're more speaking to this nurturing gardener approach that lets the kids figure their stuff out with guidance from us if something does go sideways from an adverse childhood event perspective. But in the end, the gardening is what helps these kids find their path. And that's a beautiful path because sometimes they pick up paths that we don't see because it's brand new. Yeah, I, I learned a lot from my patients about uh, how to be a better parent. And it, it was exactly along the lines uh, that you're describing. Uh, you know, when kids go out of the house every day, they are constantly subjected to uh, the world pushing back on them and showing them their shortcomings, you know, their their classmates, their teachers, their coaches, their, you know, artistic instructors, whatever it happens to be, are continually showing them that they're not measuring up. And what I wanted for my kids as adolescents, or at least I learned this, was when they come back home, I want that to be an, an oasis of support for them because they're right. getting plenty of information elsewhere that they're not good enough. And I want them to come home and feel like, yeah, you know, you guys are doing great. I'm with you. I wish I could do it all over again. You know, I think I was a pretty good parent, but I could do a lot better and, and, you know, can't fall on swords now, but my kids are 20 and 18 and I love them to death. And I would just love to give them every opportunity to have a, the safest, most happiest, most beautiful life, knowing that life's challenges are going to come at us anyway. So yeah. David, I am grateful for you. This has been an amazing hour of time to sit down Thank and exp explore your work and so I'm going to ask you one last question. I ask this of all my guests. And while you're thinking about your answer, I'm going to tell you mine. You're going to get a golden ticket. I'm going to allow you to take that golden ticket to Congress or to the president of the United States, whoever that president happens to be, and get one thing changed. And they must do what you ask. I would ask for school lunches to be completely changed. I would form a system where all the schools in the country from K through 12 have chefs, kitchens, um, old school, whole foods, no processing, nothing. So we could take a, one of the levers of disease dysfunction and remove it because we know food is involved in mental health as well. What would yes. you ask for? You know, I, I would ask very simply that every healthcare professional um, and in fact, probably every person learn that, you know, if you are experiencing pain or illness, um, that disease and injury are not the only explanations, that your brain can produce these symptoms uh, and that there's a way to successfully diagnose and treat this condition that's just as successful as anything else. And actually, you know, when doctors have learned how to do this, uh, it just transforms their practice. I mean, there was one family doctor who uh, learned from one of the courses we have on nchronicpain.org. And she took me aside at a conference and said, these concepts have put the joy back into my work. And she and two other doctors and one of their behavioral health consultants all learned this from the same course. And they have now taught this uh, to 70 other doctors in their community. Uh, it's just beautiful to see that. And that's what I want for, you know, the entire medical profession. I wish I could give it to you. I, I love asking this question. You're helping. <laughs> well, I'm doing my part and and, uh, and I love sharing your wisdom with the world. I know you have the website, www.endchronicpain.org. Um, where else would you love people to follow your work or find you? Well, you know, my first book is called They Can't Find Anything Wrong. It's written for patients. Uh, it's got its own website that describes it is stressillness.com. But we've pretty well moved everything over to endchronicpain.org. We've got uh, annual conferences. We've got the new course coming in January that's even more advanced than, than the first one. Um, we've got evidence-based uh, books that we recommend. We've got, we've written, you know, my group has written two textbooks uh, already, and I'm working on two more. Uh, so 
the, I would dearly wish I had had some of these resources when I first started out, but uh, people can take advantage of these. And uh, it's unbelievable once you start asking questions uh, along these lines of your patients, uh, what you uncover that you would never guess that can have such a rewarding impact on um, your professional life. Absolutely. And I'm going to make sure to share all those uh, links to your books and the show notes um, for people to look at when they want to afterwards. So, you know, again, just want to say how grateful I am for your your years of diligent study, your desire to buck the grain of medicine that said you must do things the way we've been taught and find a new path that has enlightened a whole new field for helping humans heal themselves and be happy in this world that we live in. So, David, I I am I'm very grateful for all your work and for your time and sharing your wisdom for this hour with the guests. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Have a great day. So what an interesting conversation with a man who spent a lot of his time trying to figure out what didn't make sense when he was practicing medicine after having an excellent education at some premier institutions in the country. And that's where we really start to become the best versions of ourselves. When we start to see things that don't make sense, we know the body doesn't choose to make mistakes in general that something else must be pushing the body into a, into a position of protection, a position of trying to help itself survive within the world and procreate. As I said many times, our genes are there to help us stay alive and make more of ourselves. So if for some reason, something is not showing up the way it's supposed to, there's usually a reason as to the why. There's a break point, a physiologic blockage, a wall. And Dr. Clark has spent his career looking at the why and learning from others and now teaching others how to do exactly that. We know that the brain generates true symptoms, pain, when it experiences symptoms, excuse me, when it experiences trauma, whether it's a physical trauma, an emotional trauma, a verbal trauma, any of them can cause the body to go into a fight or flight mode, to go into a neurologically altered state that leaves the patient long-term struggling with physiological breaks down the road, with impasses in the ability to have normal physiology. This occurs in a ton of patients. Unfortunately, way too many children have adverse childhood events. Way too many of those children grow up to be adults who are suffering from those issues. And we know now that the brain is involved in all of this. And there's a bi-directional flow of information between the prefrontal cortex, the actual neocortex, and the vagus nerve with three branches, the sympathetic, and then the parasympathetic split into the dorsal and ventral branch, all the way down to the enteric plexus. And that's huge, because in that process, we know now that the data is very clear that interoception, our process ability to feel the outside world sensorily, whether it's through energy, whether it's through verbal assessment, whether it's through threat assessment, whether it's through any of this, we have the ability to feel the outside world, and then use that information to teach our body how to respond. And that information is mostly gathered through the interoception capabilities of the human body. 80% of the serotonin, remember, is in your gut, not in your brain. 20% is in your brain. There's a flow of information where 80% information goes south to north from your gut to your brain via the vagus nerve. So the most interesting part of our body actually happens to be in the middle of our body, not our brain, when it comes to understanding the outside world, responding to it, and then learning from it in a way that is beneficial. And again, clearly in his work, he has shown that patients who have complex symptoms, who show up in clinic, who don't have a defined physiologic answer through testing, have something else going on. And it's usually answered by finding out where the psychological breakpoint occurred as a traumatic event, unwinding that through his form of therapy that he has learned and now propagated. And, you know, this is absolutely fascinating. The website that they have is PPDA, where you can go online called PPDA, actually it's technically PPDASSOCIA. TION.org, so PPDassociation.org, has lots of information on what his group, himself, and folks in this training module can help you as a patient 
unwind whatever's going on in your life. If you've been to many doctors and you have not come up with a suitable answer for as to why you are suffering and you truly feel like you are suffering, then this is a route for potentially unwinding what's happening to you. And in general, it is related to a psychological event that occurred to you. So this is the aha moment for me that I learned a few years ago that this is a way we should be looking at patients that we can't find an answer to. And as I stated clearly in my stories over the years, I have patients like this who, by all demonstrable testing, I can't find a good answer as to why they're suffering, and they're suffering tremendously. And oh, by the way, I finally get to a root cause that they've given voice to. A lot of times it's really painful for folks to give voice to those traumas. Sometimes they don't want to, but when they do, it's unbelievably liberating. It opens up pathways in the brain that allow for resolution of physiologic symptoms that are showing up as pain. And I've seen it many times in my clinic. And Dr. Clark clearly has seen it many times in his gastroenterology clinic. Highly encourage everyone to start looking at this space. Pick up his book. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think this is a way that you can start to be informed, right? So people call it trauma-informed. They give all kinds of names to this stuff. I don't really care what you call it. I just care that you get informed to understand what's really going on in the world of human disease, especially if you are suffering or you have a family member suffering. And so, you know, go give yourself the opportunity to go get on a, um, a pathway of understanding, a pathway of learning. His book, They Can't Find Anything Wrong, great place to start. If you're a practitioner, I would highly encourage a diagnostic guide for psychological disorders or go to one of his conferences and become informed yourself on how to do this with your patients. Ultimately, it takes the effort for us to be relatable to our patients who are suffering without easily testable answers. And for that, I'm grateful, again, for people like Dr. Clark and many others along the course of time that have educated us that it's not just what we learned in medical school, which frankly, again, can be pretty darn annoying that we were taught so much that was right, but also so much that wasn't. So with that, I'm going to leave you today. Great conversation. I really am so excited to have had the ability to share his work with you. Um, he's just a, a fantastic person. And, and of course, you know, by his storytelling, a fun person to listen to. And I just, I, I so enjoy just getting to sit back and listen and share. So with that, Hug those kids and just have a great day. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professionals not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This podcast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.